This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by Carmilla, an early work of vampire fiction written in 1872 by Irish author Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. It predates Bram Stoker's Dracula by 26 years, which should clarify anything Gregory gets wrong in this podcast. <laughs> Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science coming at you uh, with respectful social distance recordings. Um, here with me is our excellent producer, Dan Baderbon Kerr, and um, Justin Curry, also known as Chasing Artwork. We are not in the studio today as Winnipeg is in a code red lockdown starting today, meaning we're all supposed to be sheltering at home if we can. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. We're going to pretend like we didn't just have a conversation all about the demise of direct home video before the introduction of this podcast. It's exciting times. Yeah. So uh, speaking of exciting times, one of the things I want to bring up is... uh, um, Long-time listeners to our podcast will uh, know the name of Claire C. Marshall, who is the author of a uh, book that Justin and I sort of executive produced. Um, uh, But she also is uh, really great at doing these um, post-mortems of conventions. And one of my big lamentations of the lockdown and the closing of conventions was that I wouldn't get to read Claire's blog about um, all the different shows and all the different things she's done. But lo and behold, she just released a postmortem, which I think everyone should check Did out. Did she? Yeah, Fairy Ink Press, uh, fairyinkpress.com. We'll double check that and put it in the, line, put it in the show notes. Um, uh, a postmortem of launching a book during the pandemic and doing uh, a pre-order campaign. And I found it to be so insightful and so like carefully step-by-step that I wished I had had it before automatic age launched. Like I just uh, absolutely going to use it as a template. I'm going to share it with some publishers. I know um, Claire does uh, runs her own company, runs her own press, publishes books that she writes herself and has figured out the hard way how to get some things done. And it's really clear that she's been taking it very seriously um, what to do during a very strange time. And I think anyone who is doing, who's used to convention life or who's listening to this podcast saying like, what do I do with everything closed? How do I get my creative work out there? Should definitely check that out. Some of the highlights included uh, how she built her email list, how she, um, one thing that I thought was a really key point, which we didn't do on our Kickstarter, Justin. So I'm going to bring it up here. Oh, So she made this really, Claire made this really great point about marketing during, through email and how when you reach somebody, you really have to let them know just why it is that they have to get it now and not later. And I think that when I look back at our, our social media posts, I mean, we had a successful Kickstarter um, and so that's great. But I think one of the, when I look back at it, one of the things that I didn't do on my social media posts was underline the urgency, not that if they don't get the book now, they can never get it. But if they get the book now, it helps us directly. 
really specifically. And they, the consumer that's helping us directly right now, will get some benefits from that also. And to underline that as often as possible. Um, and she also organized or like laid out this uh, marketing schedule of how and when to send the emails, um, how it not to seem too pushy, um, what parts of your own life to include so that it's it's legitimately authentic and interesting. And there was just a whole breakdown that I really think um, if you're a creative person with an online business, you should read the postmortem by Claire C. Marshall, her most recent one. Absolutely. Hmm. That's my tirade about that. I was going through that yesterday and I was like, oh, we didn't do that. Oh, we didn't do that. Definitely didn't do that. <laughs> Should totally do that for my new book. Um, so, um, Claire, if you're listening, good job. Thanks. I'm looking forward to to checking that out. I always enjoyed reading the uh, the postmortems. It was uh, it was always neat. Like, you know, everybody has a very very different experience from a comic con. So it's it's neat seeing you know just a couple tables down what their experience was like compared to yours. So it was always uh, like, especially when I started out, I would like scour the internet for people reviewing their experience at conventions from a selling standpoint. And I would try to learn everything I could. And there was a huge, huge lack of that. Like even, even now it's, it's tough to find people really getting into, into, to like reviews of, of conventions from the, uh, the booth standpoint. It's all, you know, what Funkos they can track down and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, totally true. I wonder if we're in a position now where there's so many people like us who either have podcasts or blogs or their social media is really sharing what it is that, you know, they have time now to share. And so many of them are sharing like cartoonist kayfabe mm -hmm. and other uh, YouTube channels I can think of. Um, George McHale has a new Inside Comics uh, uh, YouTube channel stuff like that but i wonder if all that wisdom that people are sharing will ever apply again oh of course yeah we'll be fine i wonder well we were talking <laughs> before the podcast started about the demise of home video there was a lot of wisdom about how to best run and sell a home video business um just doesn't exist anymore and I wonder if uh, there is some aspect of our worlds that will no longer be true anymore. You know, like you made a joke about your first DVD being uh, Kevin Bacon's Hollow Man, right? Fantastic movie. Fantastic <laughs> film. <laughs> um, but there aren't a lot of places where you can just pop in and buy a copy of that, right? Those, those days are gone. That is what's really tough about this current situation and current like video streaming situation is that you can't always find the movies that you want to find, especially really obscure ones. And that was um, when I worked at Blockbuster, that was kind of the, the uh, downside is that we would sell off any movies that didn't rent. So if a movie had less than like two rentals in a year, we'd sell it off, which is great for the people who came in wanting to buy some, you know, obscure anime um, oh. and then we, we actually did end up selling the entire anime section at one point. I remember we did that because it just overall was not renting, was not a popular, um, genre in my particular location. So, um, so yeah, all that stuff is, is gone. And 
and now know. those sections are their own streaming services. Like well, the, all those movies you sold for two dollars are the Criterion Collection now. Yeah, and and, and it's, it's splitting off into like we have Shutter, which is all horror movies. We have Disney Plus, which is a Disney movies. So it's yeah, all those sections are becoming their own thing. So we have to pay for them individually, but they're also not publishing everything. Although I am pretty impressed with Shutter. I did take a look at Shutter. Um, they do have a pretty good selection of like, like it's gotten a lot better since the last time I looked at it as far as their both horror movies and um, like older ones and also their their kind of original series which is also um, something pretty new as well and is, Dan is that why you say that it's hard to find certain things is because depending on the movie it's on a streaming service that you don't have or owned by yeah there's just so many streaming services and things are so spread out you and, likely don't have the streaming service you need to watch that movie yeah and or uh it also comes off of streaming when it's the right time like at halloween mm -hmm. uh, all the scary movies come off on netflix and christmas yeah. time all the christmas movies come off on netflix and they go to like individual you got to rent these on your on-demand service to watch i them. wonder i wonder if we're going to reach a place where a middleman service comes in you know like um when you ship something through ups they buy freight and shipping at huge rates, right? Like, like they bulk purchase that stuff to lock in a pro rate. And then each of their uh, items that they ship or send out, right, has an average price to them, which is how they make money. Is there going to be a place where somebody comes in and buys a million Facebook, oh, pardon me, um, Netflix, um, Amazon, Shutter, Crunchyroll accounts as one big bundle? And then for... Ten ninety nine or thirteen ninety nine or twenty dollars, you know, like lower than it would cost to have them all. You can just have all those services through another. <laughs> you got it. And is that a business model that we should immediately raise capital investment for? Yeah, I think, we don't you, I think you got it. About five hundred million dollars to start. <laughs> you guys get yeah. sure. You did it. You're the first. I've done Crunchyroll as well. I've done uh, like a lot of these uh, platforms I've tried out just to see what they're, and again, I don't watch it often enough. Like we use Crunchyroll and we watched pretty much all of My Hero Academia and uh, until something else comes new out new for that, I don't see the reason to continue it. Um, you know, and that's, that's kind of the same thing for HBO or any of these specialized um, streaming services. The only ones I seem to keep on regular are Netflix and, and Prime because those are the ones I use the most often. Mm -hmm. and it course, seems like so many of them come out with uh, like what was the one with um, Star Trek Discovery? Oh, the, the um, CBS All Access, but then they they backed down on that because it wasn't getting enough views. So now they're just airing Discovery on TV, like it's on it's oh. on primetime. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, it's been on the season three of Discovery has been on airing on TV, like old fashioned television, oh. <laughs> commercials and all. Uh, so, so I guess that backfired well I, they didn't get enough uptake star trek alone is not enough to carry that whole streaming service right they need more than just that yeah well um, that was the like what i was going to bring up was it didn't seem like there was anything of, of that i really wanted on that streaming service except for that so it's like basically just paying a little yeah paying to stream star trek and nothing else no i'd almost do it but it actually was really hard to get it to work on my uh uh, PlayStation just didn't mm. work properly. And once it didn't load, 
properly twice, I'd never try it again. Hey, that's yeah. it. Wow, we're lucky we got you on the Zoom call, Greg. It took you four tries yeah. to go on the Zoom call. <laughs> no. Well, that's different because I like you guys. You're special additions in my heart. Oh, thank you. Mm. Um, all right, you NaNoWriMo slackers. Justin, you were saying you didn't work on your book that much. Uh, no, I think I'm around 10, 10, 11,000 words. Um, so I mean, I'm, I've, I've worked on it since we last chatted, but I, uh, I recently kind of dived into a piece. I find this happens like every couple of months I'll get, um, kind of just obsessed with an idea and, um, want to go a little above and beyond a normal painting. It's usually around this time of year too, I've noticed, like around the, the changing of seasons, it's starting to, to snow here in Winnipeg, um, where we've you know got about an inch of snow on the ground now. Things have gotten colder, it's starting to get dark at five o'clock, 4.30. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think last year at this point, I, I animated a Gundam being built in a time-lapse animation and I spent like four straight days on it. It wasn't for any reason other than I just got obsessed with the idea of making this time-lapse build. And then, uh, yeah, so the last couple of days, I, I, really, I really enjoy, it's um, like a corner of the internet. A lot of, especially like anime themed artists will draw um, noodle shops and um, like ramen, ramen alleys. Um, so just like, buildings covered in signs and um, lanterns and stuff and it's usually at night uh i don't know it's just like a, a corner of artwork that you find on the internet and i wanted to do something like that not to but, mention um, the number of times we've sought those alleyways out in the cities we've traveled to exactly yeah and i've, I've been to japan so i've seen like exactly those streets that are uh i've seen exactly those shops um so i wanted to draw one and then i also wanted to incorporate I, a robot into it because that's what I do. Um, so I spent uh, the last couple of days um, building this big robot that's been um, basically hooked up to this ramen shop and they're using his uh, like power source to heat and power their, their shop. And uh, I covered it in plants and drew a couple people. And it's one of the most complex pieces I think I've, I've ever painted so it was uh it was a lot of fun and it took a long time and it's kind of been there's all I've been doing I really like yeah it. I like how there's these little um stories happening in sort of each quadrant of the of the illustration yeah there's um there's chickens up to weird things there's cats in there there's people reading books people playing on the robot um and then the other thing that this kind of accomplished uh, I didn't realize this as I was building it. I kind of decided halfway through. Um, the Dragon Nanny Kickstarter unlocked a, uh, an additional print that every single person gets. And this story, the story that this piece kind of builds really fits into the, like, the universe um, of my graphic novel. So this will be the free print that everybody who got the physical book also gets this as a print. And then I'm also going to put it on my online store. So anybody who orders the Dragon Nanny book in 2020 also gets this print for free so it kind of is bolstering the, the dragon annie graphic novel in a bunch of different ways uh, justin i'm noticing on the, the there's a little chalkboard in this uh, noodle stand um yes I can't quite make out what it says 
So that's the spicy noodle challenge. If you finish the the bowl of noodles uh, in one sitting, you get your name up on a wall of fame and a t-shirt. Oh, sweet. Um, And then there's a little disclaimer though. If it's, if uh, the challenge causes um, untimely, yeah, if it causes health conditions or untimely deaths, we're not responsible. And this is actually uh, inspired by a ramen shop that Greg and I went to in Chicago yeah. with our good friend Quirkylicious. And they had the Hell Ramen Challenge that, yeah, if you finish the spicy bowl of noodles, you get a t-shirt, but then an asterisk that says, if you have to go to the hospital, it's not our fault. <laughs> so I guess this thing was so hot that it put people in, you know, like pretty big distress. And uh, yeah, so they, enough that they had to have a disclaimer, can't sue us if you try this. I thought that was funny. Well, and I realized yeah. that it says it on the sidebar here. I wasn't looking at the description of the of the image, but it's, you read, you said all that spicy nudes challenge. But I love this piece. It's yeah. really really cool. It's just it's it's a perfect kind of vision of the future of this future where there's these all these robots broken down and people are just making use of them. Very, very yeah, cool. I if it takes like I hope people really like this piece because I have a whole series planned of um, like an ice cream shop with a uh, like set in a snowy environment, like uh, a whole world where humans are kind of rebuilding and there's all these massive robots dormant around the world and they're just being used as kind of batteries for their businesses. Mm-hmm. So like, like a, a coconut sh- Yeah, exactly. That was kind of the start of all of this. Um, but I have a whole bunch of little shops that I'd love to draw that have all been built around ancient war machines. Mm-hmm. Um, so if this takes off, but that's the thing, right? Like, I love that idea of a project, but that's like, months of work so i kind of need a little more than just uh just my own want to do it you know mm-hmm. i need to be a little a little more businessy had about it yeah i don't know or arm- or maybe i don't the armchair psychologist in it in me um sees that you're coming to terms with the wreckage of your past life and you're willing to rebuild from the mm. good parts right art parts. is your battery Built a little shop around it. All right. It's all good. Um, and I, I want a free t-shirt. Yeah, you want a free <laughs> Business hat-wise, I think an important uh, thing to consider uh, for, uh, for people who are, um, you know, they're making art, they're making um, books, they're making, you know, uh, whether for lack of a better, more... Um, robust way to describe it they're making um like etsy shop paraphernalia right um all of those people i see around on the internet they're all making things even though there's no place to sell them right they're just doing it because it's what's in them to do is to make all this stuff and it's just like their way to uh self-express it but at a certain point you're going to have an inventory just like you now have this print Mm -hmm. and then deciding what to do with it is a big you know, maybe concern is too bold of a word for it, but um, there is a concern. Like I've been making lots of stuff. I'm going to have at the end of this calendar year, sort of an extra graphic novel under my belt um, with no place to sell it. And um, I think a lot of people are hoping that somebody else is going to come up with the next thing, right? That we can then jump on to. Um, but I think instead of that, we should take, we should all be considering that uh, Claire Marshall approach of just make it, 
make it available to people and let people know as often as possible that it is available and you know you might be able to just weather the storm there is no magic bullet here and you know what the sad part about it is it's that i have this gift and i can't even use it that's something i've i've kind of haven't liked about the last couple months of of my like social media is constantly pointing people towards my store i uh yeah it feels I, know, I feel it does yeah and it, it shouldn't but i like I, yeah, I'm struggling with always being like, hey, I did a thing and go buy it here. I don't like doing that, but it's, you know, what else are you supposed to do? You're right. The, the store doesn't really move unless I am posting about it, right? Like people aren't really going there on their own. There's a direct correlation to when I do a post like, hey, I've got this and go buy it here, then sales come. If I don't say yeah. anything, people aren't going there by themselves. But it feels, yeah, like a little gross to always be like, hey, go buy my stuff. Yeah, but keep in mind that not everybody's seeing every single one of those posts every time. It's, it's not true, like, yeah. It's not like, you know, you're inundating your followers with post after post of buy my stuff, buy my stuff. Um, that's why it works, right? Because it's, it's catching a certain amount of people. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen, uh, I haven't got a print from Justin this year. I should go check out his store, you know, because they haven't seen you at a con or whatever. That, that would be the reason I think that someone would, would do that. Um, but yeah, people are pretty, you know, single-minded when they're online. They're like, dude, dude, they're just kind of going yeah. through stuff and they're like, oh, look at that. And they'll go yeah. where you push you, you, you push them. Kind of the, the one trick that I've kind of, um, fa like that I quite like using was, uh, uh, for artists online, there's throwback Thursday. So every Thursday you're supposed to kind of repost something that you did, um, just a couple months to a couple of years ago and be like, Remember, yeah, I did this piece years ago and here's what I was doing. And it's just kind of a, like, you know, a memory from your timeline. And that's the post that I always try to direct people to the store on. So the rest of my posts are just normal, but every throwback Thursday is also a, I did this and here's my store. So it's kind of tied into that day of the week and I'm trying not to do it any other time. I don't know. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So you just something that is already kind of automated you also have your commercial in. yeah and so yeah. that your throwback thursday is kind of my ad yeah the rest of your social media is still the social part mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah interesting i don't know it's all uh, i'm finding myself spending less and less time on social media just in general and like days when i don't pick up my phone till the end of the day just to check an essential message or two are like the best days ever so I can't, if I'm feeling that way, I can't imagine that there aren't literally millions of people feeling the same way, that they're just constantly being shouted at in increasing desperation from every corner of the world too. So there's a, there's a flip side, right? Yes, you have to share. And the other side is, no, not everyone will hear it, as Dan points out. And yeah. maybe people are just exhausted. And not to mention, uh, you know, here in North America, out of work and unable to... <laughs> go to work yeah so yeah there's a whole uh there's a whole kettle of fish going around um on the optimistic side i've been uh using as we mentioned last episode i've been using nanorimo to just kind of plug away at my regular novel as just every time i see somebody else talk about nanorimo i remind myself yes i should be working on my book too and i make sure that i do stick to my schedule so uh, the backbone of night is coming along uh uh, nicely. What's your word count at? Uh, it's a good question. It's probably, 
Around uh, 15, 16,000 words right now. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. <laughs> but I, you mean, I, it also has, uh, there's also 22, 27 illustrations that go along with that as well. And I'm going to have to scale that back. Like it's going to have to close in around 15,000 words. So I'm overwriting right now so that I can cut or push some of that into the, the, the third book. Gotcha. Uh, and the way I'm writing is in these sort of vignette passages, sort of like the first book is structured. So um, there are big jumps in time or setting that occur just between the chapter breaks. So it gives me some freedom if I overwrite, but I do it in a linear like this leads to this leads to this. Then if I have too much, I don't have to cut all of it. I can just break it and move some of the key events into the next book. Uh, my big problem okay. with that book right now is that I keep writing people into, I mentioned this last time, into overly dangerous situations and then leaving it to resolve the next day. And then I show up and I still don't know how to fix it. So then instead I'll write the next scene. I'll just write the scene after as if it got solved. And yeah. sometimes while writing that scene, it'll occur to me how it was solved. So it's just, um, you know, it's a um, knowing the final structure and what the final word count and the rough number of illustrations that I have to have in that book, because I've done one already, changes the NaNoWriMo game, right? It's not, please try and finish a book if you can. It's, it's uh finish a book the way you finished the last book. So it's a little bit of an unfair advantage, I would say, as far as that goes. Um, okay. my, big, uh, my big struggle has been with uh, working on iCollector issue four and five. Issues one to three are already in the can and the first one comes out in November. So we're, you know, I got a lot of lead time to finish up that fourth one. Uh, and I'm about five pages from being finished, but um, it's this really like, it's a pretty dark story and it's a pretty heavy section. And uh, in the real world, um, a dear friend of mine uh, recently passed away and I've been having some pretty vivid dreams uh, related to that also, you know, part of just processing that you can't go see them and you're not going to have a funeral and all that kind of stuff. So it's been hard to work on a book all about uh, the danger of dreaming too deeply while I'm in the middle of doing that too, visually. <laughs> I've, actually, I've actually found it easier to do the writing than to do the illustration this past uh, three weeks or so. So it's been a, been a weird kind of where the real world butts up against the, the fictional world. So that's strange. But we had a great meeting with Heavy Metal about how the book will be released and when and where and what the plan is if COVID abates soon and if it doesn't abate until later. And they've got a really good um, open-minded approach to just getting the sort of weirdest, strangest book we've ever made together and then <laughs> release it uh, in a timely fashion. So it's been a uh, kind of a weird... Since our last podcast, it's been a pretty weird week for me, for sure. Which is partially why I have not responded to you or Dan's texts um, in any... I mean, I'm usually pretty slow as it is, but uh, in this particular instance, I know I've been even harder to reach, but that's why. Because life just uh, gets in the way sometimes. 
Um, yeah. No. I was gonna I was gonna ask you guys a really profound question, and then I forgot what it was. Um, it was gonna be so good. It was gonna be deep. It was gonna help really add a facet to our understandings of ourselves, the world we live in. Well, we're sell it here. Just creative expressions. It was it was it was a great question. I could feel it, but uh, it's gone now. So sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. Did it have to do with Kevin Bacon's Hollow Man? <laughs> maybe because i feel so hollow um yeah maybe could maybe it does um uh have you seen the new invincible man movie not yet no no i love that actress though she's amazing oh yeah looking forward to it uh it's apparently great yeah i haven't seen it yet either it's working it's actually working of course it is my kids have this big stack for uh school we've been going through this big stack of classics illustrated so we have all these um abridged versions of great works of literature that i also have the for the majority of them i also have the actual books here but so many of them have also been made into graphic novels which because i'm a literary nerd i also have those so i've been doing this thing with my kids where they read uh the classics illustrated version of the of a bunch of different classic works of literature and if they like them then they graduate to the better version. So it's like their ticket to entry is reading the crappy version from 1960 um, with the bad illustrations and the poor font choices. And then if they can withstand it, then their interest gets uh, inflamed and then they leap ahead. So I have a question for you because I'm going to get the stack. Hold on a second. Which of these great works of literature do you think would be most interesting to uh, kids ages nine to 11, all right? War of the Worlds, uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Time Machine, Gulliver's Travels, Black Beauty, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Three Musketeers, Dracula, Moby Dick, and The Red Badge of Courage. Which ones do you think? The way we did it first was I gave them that stack and I said, pick the ones you think are most interesting. We'll read those first. What are your- Well, I think they thinking? probably picked War of the Worlds. Uh, no, not and no, really. 20,000 Leagues was mine. Okay, so, yeah. so Moby Dick and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Hmm. You know why? Because you play that Assassin's Creed pirate game with your kids <laughs> where you sail around on a boat. So they, I think they're just a big fan of any seafaring adventure. There might, that might also be true. But one thing that they pointed out that I... As a person who's actually taught these books many times to classrooms full of interested or not so interested students, uh, is that Moby Dick and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea are basically like reflections of each other. One is about a mad sea captain chasing a monster whale, and the other one is about a mad sea captain who pilots the monster whale. And the number of similarities in the structure of both books that my uh, nine and 11 year old pointed out just by reading the graphic novel versions. Which one came first? Moby Dick came first, right? 1872 for 20,000 leagues. Yeah, in 1869. Oh, wow. Yeah. Or tw- no, 1869 is originally published 20,000 leagues. Oh, okay. So what was Moby Dick? So Moby Dick and- uh, <laughs> When I Googled it, it came up Moby Dick, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> he was in, a, he was in oh, 1851, so Moby Dick did come first, but not by much. Not by much, but whaling was a big, uh, you know, it was clearly yeah. a big thing. 
Um, it was the uh, the lamp oil, right? That was why. That's right. right? Thereafter, yeah. yeah. So uh, both of those, I have lots of uh, versions of. There's some great French editions of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea that have been turned into graphic novels, and uh, um, but interestingly enough, I also have all the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen graphic novels uh, up to mm. present, of which there are many. And their immediate interest to read these books, which are absolutely not appropriate for children whatsoever, um, <laughs> is uh, really interesting to me that all these different versions of these classic works of which I have, you know, the novelizations, I have um, illustrated novel uh, sort of summaries of them. I have graphic novels. I have the comics of so many of these because um, I use them for so many different uh, parts of teaching. My question, I guess, then to you from this tangent is, um, why do you think certain works endure and others just become, you know, the chaff of bookstore return bins? My, I guess I would, I would respond with another question and say, does that happen anymore? Um, do do people still write and publish novels on the same level as these these classics? They're illustrated classics for a reason. These are like the most some of the most celebrated novels ever written in that list that you just said. In uh, retrospect, there yeah, were a but, lot of books so in eighteen fifty one. But but does do people are are books like that still being created? Is there anything that's come out in the last twenty years that you would put on the same level as those? We won't know for another 40 years. Well, tw yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. In, in 2251, uh, I guess we'll know. <laughs> right. Um, see, yeah. Like I've wondered about this too. Like how much of that is familiarity, like brand awareness. Like everybody is familiar with um, Moby Dick. Like everybody's heard of that. So as soon as you make anything called Moby Dick, people have this frame of reference and they're more likely to check it out than something they've never heard before. Um, in, I, I thought about yeah. this a lot, like in, yes, in the Louvre. That had to happen in a time in the 1800s, right? Up into the, you know, like early 19th century, we're getting into publishing en masse. Uh, it had to have been a success enough and enduring enough that it got passed along through word of mouth. But there's so many, no, there's so many other things that could have been like, maybe they just had money to put into marketing back in a time where nobody had money to put into marketing, right? Like was that, it wasn't just some guy wrote it down on paper and started. No, I disagree with that because I'll see you, I'll, I'll, I'll hear that uh, and I'll raise you a uh, Conan or a uh, Call of Cthulhu both of which were at the time financial disasters, uh, couldn't get published, right. people were not recognizing right. it, didn't care, no one liked it, uh, critics hated them. Um, and now their they're works that whether you like them or not, they've endured, they've, they've survived mm -hmm. uh, the fact that people thought they were bad at the beginning, right? Even Edgar Allan right. Poe right. was at his beginnings um, a failure. Yeah. So, you know, it has to have something that endures beyond popularity. Like we were talking about the, uh, uh, this is a great segue to a part of the conversation that won't be in the podcast that we had before about the um, wall of videos at the 
blockbuster video, how people would come in and they would just rent the new thing. Didn't matter if it was good. They just rent what was new. And then other movies ended up in the dollar bin or the $2 bin, which are now 20, 30 years later, what we would classify as the criterion collection, right? Great works of film that even though they were financial failures are enduring works of art, right? So that's my question is like, where, how do you, there's no way to pick it, I guess, but what do you guys think allows a work to endure? What do you think some of those key ingredients are? I mean, if it's a story that appeals to a, a lot of people, like, like a lot of people can relate to, although I don't know that everybody can relate to Moby but Dick. I'm not a whaler. Well, I'm, I'm sure we've all been obsessed with something. We've all had some kind of obsession, uh, not to the extreme that Ahab did, but, uh, you know, maybe we can, oh, it's, I'm, not that, I'm not that bad. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, I've never read the actual novel Moby Dick. I've read the Illustrated Classics version of it, um, but I've never read was, uh, uh, the actual one. Was Moby Dick successful when it first came out? Or was it one of those that was like it was a financial failure and then years later it was discovered, like rediscovered and reprinted? Well, and that's a great question. As far as I know, um, it took a long time to write, like two years or something like that. Um, Herman Melville was writing it and I don't know if it was serialized or not. Um, like so many works at that time, I have to imagine that it was. Moby Dick is one of those works that is so quotable today. You can pull out lines of it that are that hit with such relevance. But as a work to reread now is a hard slog. I would I would say that any one of those books are a pretty tough slog um, because of the difference in writing style. I just found the, just found the answer to your question. Okay, um, go ahead magic of the internet justin 3200 copies of the book moby dick were sold during the author's life oh wow oh yeah so that's we've sold more copies of our book than he sold of moby dick wow yeah and and i was what i was saying was that it's tough um because of the difference in you know, in writing styles, because I mean, I enjoy reading period piece novels, like uh, a book set in different times, but it was a contemporary novel at the time. And so was, so was um, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. There, it was written of its time, but to us, of course, it's now hundreds of years ago. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I was introduced to all these things. So speaking to brand recognition, almost all of those novels, I've read almost all of those through the Illustrated Classics series. That's how I was introduced to them. I think, uh, did you, do you have Man in the Iron Mask? That was another one I read. Uh, oh, we series. have it somewhere. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, definitely, but, I don't have it as a classic illustrated, but so if someone wants to send it to me, we should make a PO box. <laughs> but it's such a great, that's why it's such a great series for kids to get them interested in these older pieces of, of uh, fiction. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I really loved reading those when I was a kid. I should get my some for my kids. I never even, I totally forgot about those until you brought it up. You have no idea how much fun this is. You should try it. I'm sure I'll have my chance. So we had read 20,000 Leagues, and then we did some, uh, you know, we watched the Disney film, and, and we did Moby Dick, and we looked at excerpts from the original novel. I read some of that out loud to them. and uh, But then the great, Moby Dick's story of our time, one of my favorite films, uh, you know, it's easily in my top five ever, 
uh, despite its uh, obvious flaws, is The Wrath of Khan. Star Trek. Obvious game. flaws? What are you talking right? about? Which is a retelling of Moby Dick. And I'd always Ball known it was true, right? But there is a scene in it. We, I watched it with the kids. And uh, uh, Khan is leaning. Oh, pardon me, not Khan. Uh, Chekhov is holding the seatbelt of the overturned like uh, escape pod that they find on on the desolate planet. City and Alpha he, 6. Right? He is, yeah. This is City Alpha 6. Um, he's looking at it and he's making his explanation like, oh, the Botany Bay and it's supposed to connect to the, to the you know, whole grand operatic moment of the film itself. But on the shelf right behind him, my son, my oldest son points out that Moby Dick is literally on the shelf behind him in that scene. <laughs> that one of the books that has survived in these science fiction characters' long journey from Earth to this distant planet, they actually have the book Moby Dick on there. Like, it's, it's so obviously Khan is, is Ahab and, uh, you know, Kirk is the white whale. Now, and can, can I say that I've, I've seen that movie many, many times, and I don't think I've ever noticed that. Yeah, it's right there on the shelf. There's a so, shelf of a whole bunch eye, of good eye, right? Uh, from your son, good eye, but also probably because it was top of mind because you guys had just talked, spoken about it. But that's that's just it. Like what I said to them was, we're going to watch a movie that to me is a modern day Moby Dick. And I didn't even realize how obviously a modern day Moby Dick it was. Like even mm. the filmmakers were pointing to the trope. So, so you should be able to answer this without the internet. Was Wrath of Khan, like Wrath of Khan is... I think widely recognized as one of the best Star Trek movies ever now, but at the time, how'd that do upon release? I believe it, it did, did well. well enough because they greenlit the sequel right away, which then uh, Star Trek three was a dismal failure. No, but Star Trek one, Star Trek one was successful because it was the first Star Trek movie, but there's a little yeah, bit it, of a, it wasn't very good. So there's a little bit of um burnout there people were, were not as hyped up to see the second one but i think it's still i saw it in the theater i mean i i, I think a lot of people saw it in the theater and, and uh it probably that was well. the one with the the giant ship coming to earth and they can't stop it slow it down the they don't know one. what it is yeah yeah, yeah i love that one i did too i, I did great. too honestly yeah. i thought it was very cool i love the idea of them taking this human this human satellite voyager and turning it into a like that was neat i like that and i don't know yeah, it was just very yeah. boring they didn't it took them a long time to get there is the problem yeah i think it was <laughs> like it felt like more classic sci-fi than even star trek is you know like it was very uh slow pace like, but yeah it was like great. arthur yeah. c clark had written a star trek movie mm -hmm. yeah i quite well, enjoyed it yeah so it's a good film but it you know wrath of khan is the militarization of starfleet uh Gene Roddenberry and, and, and his family, you know, it's one of their least favorites as a result of the uh, obvious militarization of Starfleet, which the, you know, it's not supposed to represent that. But that's, so. that's when Starfleet got really good is when they got into the militarization aspect of it. Uh, and then even going further down to Deep Space Nine, when Deep Space Nine became all about the war against the uh, Jem'Hadar or whatever, that whole thing was when that series got really good. Oh, we're going to go. Don't let us go so deep, Dan. Uh oh. <laughs> uh, what I will come back to, though, I'm going to spin this back around to the idea of an enduring story, though, right? So, one of the reasons why I was promoting reading these old classics with my own kids is I was maintaining to them 
I was like, we're going to read these, not because they're all great to you, but because so many filmmakers, uh, um, animated feature designers, video game designers, comic book makers, have this in their wheelhouse as stories that they're retelling. There are so many versions of Dracula. There are so many versions of War of the World. It's out, they're just out there almost ad nauseum. And I'm guilty of it myself. Um, is that in part though, just because they are, a rec again, kind of bringing it back, a recognizable brand that is something that they can, it's public domain, right? Like there's nothing stopping me from making a Dracula graphic novel. And also, I have that added bonus. There's nothing stopping you from making a um, Last of the Mohicans graphic novel either. Yeah. Right. But, you know, one endures more greatly than the other. And I wonder, I think Dan struck upon it already in that the metaphor is easy to separate. Like when you looked at Moby Dick, you're like, ah, obsession. Everyone has an obsession, right? When we look at Moby, when we look at War of the Worlds, we say, ah, everyone has feared an invader at some point, right? Uh, whether rightfully or wrongfully, but that fear is, is definitely part of the human experience, right? Um, if you look at a novel like Dracula, right? It's the, again, it's that foreign invader, right? And somebody else pointed out, um, actually it was on your uh, horror talk that we did for FanQuest, Dan. Um, Dr. Ball pointed out that uh, one of the things that makes Dracula so scary at its time was it was a foreigner who could pass as English and was super wealthy. Yeah. Right? Which would have, which to us doesn't seem that scary, but to the people contemporarily, it struck differently. Right. And yet, when you separate the core versus the drive of the story, um, some things last longer than others. Will our books endure? I don't know. Yeah, like I'm still wondering if it's just a. Um... Like it's kind of a snowball effect. Like those are great stories, but the fact that they kept getting updated again and again and again, it kind of keeps the it keeps it in on everybody's radar for such a long time that they become legends, you know? And how many other great stories just never got retold two or three times to to get that snowball effect that we see from something like Dracula or Moby Dick that are, you know, almost yearly there's something there's another story told under that name. Right. So that comes back around and uh, this will be my uh, education peeking out. Um, so Boreard and the notion that the real is only that which can be recreated. So as long as we see something often enough, it mm -hmm. seems important. Right. And so what are the works of literature that have been pushed down or suppressed as a result of that. One of the things that happened to me over the last couple of years of shows is I really like this story, Carmilla. And, um, you know, I you did a print of Carmilla. That. I, I'd never heard Carmilla before. Right? Really, the first vampire in literature is Carmilla. And, uh, you know, um, depending on your interpretation, you could very obviously argue the first representation of a same sex relationship in popular literature also. Um, it was a story that a lot of people at shows had not heard of, but because I had the print up next to my Dracula print, it opened the conversation of 
oh, what's this other Dracula or what's this other vampire piece you have? And I'm like, oh, that's Carmilla. She actually predates Dracula. And most people would be, they were shocked, you know? They were like, no, I thought Dracula was the original vampire. I'm like, no, it turns out this, uh, you know, someone else got there first. And uh, try not to be too upset that it's also uh, a female writer that got there first, you know? And it, it really calls to question you know, or really puts more into focus what you're saying that some things got famous maybe because they were just constantly redone and other things um, weren't shown that often. One last kiss for old time's sake. I'd like to make a, uh, a slight correction. I uh, mixed up two details about writers. I usually rant about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein um, as Mary Shelley being the prominent female writer of the time. And I misappropriated um, uh, that veneer um, and threw it onto Carmilla. Carmilla was uh, written by Sheridan Le Fanou, I think is how you say it. Um, I just realized that as we were talking that, so Carmilla was not in fact written by a woman, but it was a, the earliest vampire story and starred a female vampire. So anyone who heard that earlier, who was like, what the fuck are you talking about, Kamichuk? Um, I apologize for my previous literary faux pas. Um, but coming back around to what you're saying about Air Force One, what if it had a vampire on it? Wouldn't that have been better? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because Gary Oldman was Dracula. He was. He was. Right? <laughs> so if Dracula had been the terrorist on Air Force One, do you think that would have spawned a much better series of sequels? Well, no, because it would have killed him at the end of the movie. No, or he would have would come he, back. He, he come back. Yeah, he would have flown off as a bat. He's like, end. get off my plane. He throws him off and he turns into a bat and flies. Oh, and then you could have rolled... Instead of snakes on the plane, you could have had stakes on the plane, oh. and it could have been a vampire hunter on the yeah. plane. Samuel L. Jackson could have come in. This sounds like one of those subpar sequels that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Wait, yeah, <laughs> it's not going to be as good as the first one. Oh and eventually goodness. they'll go to space because wasn't that where all the the movies eventually ended up? Like Jason in space. And That's Leprechaun actually in space. That was one of my favorite parts <laughs> of the thirteenth. I love Jason in space. Jason, X. <laughs> I love it. It's such a good movie. So much fun. David Cronenberg so, gets killed in the first five minutes. It's awesome. So okay, so we've clearly highlighted um, a key feature is two things that happen is that if something endures, eventually someone will make a good version if the core idea sticks around or if it makes a lot of money, you're going to get another one. Right. Mm -hmm. So can you combine those two ideas where if you made a book that, you know, yeah, it's not that great, but you just make sure you constantly put out a sequel every couple of years. Will it eventually build up enough brand recognition that it will carry on on its own? Is that what like romance just novels force are? Force it into being like a legendary story? Yeah. Like, can we think of anything where that occurred? Like where we just know it's not, it shouldn't be as popular as it is, but we just keep getting, I think you brought it up, Leprechaun as a movie franchise. Michael Bay's Transformers. Oh, there's a great example. Yeah. Just keeps making like, money. Although that's one of those things where I'm like the Bumblebee movie. I, I loved it. Quite enjoyed that. And that's a result of, um, somebody decent taking the reins and doing a good Transformers story because we've been like 
drowning in crappy transformers for so long they can use that brand platform to make a better one but we also know the origin of transformers begins as knockoff gi joe's clear gi joe bodies that eventually turned into transforming robots which eventually got coalesced into an american brand of a bunch of different transforming robots which eventually made a cartoon and a whole bunch of cartoons which eventually made a bunch of movies but the core idea of the robot that transforms that's the enduring part and What's they never yeah that's, that's like the least important part of any transformers story is them actually hiding as whatever they're supposed to be hiding as they immediately transform into a giant robot and proceed. Yeah. Robots in, <laughs> in, yeah. They should just call it robots are these guys instead of robots in yeah. disguise. <laughs> Transformers, yeah. robots are these guys. <laughs> it, that would work, right? So, you know, there's going to be another He-Man movie and probably another, I heard about that. another couple. Oh, and, oh, I actually, I didn't know. I was just guessing guessing because i was thinking like what oh what big 80s franchise haven't we heard from in a while ninja turtles hasn't had a new movie in a while so i'm sure they're gonna reboot uh, soon well are they gonna do another one of those like michael bay produced ones like the ones I that feel like the... they're gonna no they're gonna do a gritty reboot dan it's gonna be darker <laughs> and more like samurai ronin ninja turtles because they they have a, a graphic novel series going on right now well, think, Last Ronin like, apparently is amazing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, everybody's talking about that. So I bet you it's going to be another couple of years they will announce some kind of gritty Ninja Turtles movie. Um, yeah, you so heard it's gonna it be... here first, folks. <laughs> well, and the, uh, the Masters of the Universe movie is going to be a Netflix live-action movie um, slated for release. Hmm. Well, slated for release next year. Wait, which... who is playing He-Man? I don't think they've cast it yet. Who would you cast? As oh, modern uh, Henry He-Man? Cavill. No. What's... Oh well. Mm, yeah, maybe. Because of, of the Witcher, are you talking about? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was honestly, I was not a big Henry Cavill fan until I watched The Witcher. Uh, he has the chip for it. He's. Yeah. I, yeah. I like everything about The Witcher except Henry Cavill. <laughs> okay. Really? It's fair. That's yeah. Fair. I find him to be a. Um, I don't know. He's just like a. It's like a standing stone in the middle of a field full of pretty flowers. You know, like you notice him, but he's not the most interesting thing in the field. I love the song. Chris Pratt as He-Man. I'd watch uh, that. That'd be fun. No. <laughs> the, thing is, the, the thing is, back when they made that Dolph Lundgren version in the 80s, that archetype of the hero was very much prominent. You had your Stallone, your um, so the Stallone or, or Schwarzenegger or Dolph Lundgren, big muscly guy. And that's not really like, it would be what? The Rock maybe now would be He-Man? Be the closest um, we would get to a He-Man type person is The Rock. Well, and even this idea that we see, and it's great because we're talking about what endures, right? We're trying to match fames with the character. Yeah. Which yeah. that's, even that is a modern convention of media. Right, that there are stars big enough that if you found the right one, it would boost the other thing, which is already a star, the He Man project. Right. Right. And you want like to combine stories it. that they don't think are strong enough to stand by themselves. They need to attach a, a big name to it. We were, when I think we launched casting in Tonkin, Toronto, we talked to somebody who was deep into um, animated feature films. He was talking to us about, I forget which movie in particular, but 
when they first animated it, they had like B-list, like just voice actors oh, that they, right. they hired. Um, and he said like the movie was great, but it was, it was a new um, property. So the only way the studio would green light it is if they brought in like some huge actors, like some huge names to voice the characters instead of these unknowns. Yeah, even though the, they had to recast it. Yeah. Yeah. Even though he liked the version with the unknowns better, it didn't have those big names attached to it. So it wasn't going to do well enough was on just the tale? story alone. Sounds like a uh, shark yeah. uh, Sorry, Will Smith and Jack Black. <laughs> I was joking. That was a forgettable movie. I'm well, yeah. I'm sure that was That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyways. So if we, if we, again, if we try to wrap up our conversations, top points into like an actionable strategy. This is, this is the teacher and you doing this. Every episode, you have to try and wrap it up and have some kind of lesson come out of this. There's got to be a lesson. Otherwise, what's the point of this? Why know. is anyone listening if we're not going to try and at least uh, <laughs> coalesce into a complete idea? Dear listener, I'm thinking of you in a way that these other two gentlemen are not. Um, if you have something that you've made, right? And there is a piece of it that you can lend some greater star quality to. I mean, let's face it. Um, my best-selling book ever uh, is because there was a famous band attached to it, not because my name was attached to it. Right? You, if you can find some component um, that people will recognize that's greater than, than the piece you're bringing, that might propel you along. I've actually been having some talks uh, related to the role-playing game that I've been uh, designing and sort of into its beta test now, um, whether or not I should license some more well-known property oh. at its first release so that people will, you know. They I was actually not- just going to ask that. Like if you had a, if your next project could be tied to a, like a household name, what well, would it be? It, right? What would it be? Yeah. What would you what would you rebrand with your own thing? And like something like a video game or a film, you know, because they're a, a cross media, it makes sense. Like taking a role-playing game uh, mechanic and then licensing a well-known media property for it, um, you yeah. know, makes some, what was, makes some good sense. This kind of ties in. What was Die Hard 3 supposed to be? It wasn't written as a Die Hard movie. It was written as something else. Yeah, apocryphally, it was a lethal weapon script. Oh, and then they repurposed it for John McClane. Yeah. Cool. That was, that was like a good movie. Yeah, it was supposed that was like my, I think my favorite oh, yeah. Die Hard movie. Right, yeah, and it was just supposed to be like one of their old villains that comes back with a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, uh, puzzles and riddles for them. And so they just rewrote the beginning and the end so that the way in for the characters and the way out for them made more sense as a diehard movie. Hmm. How often do you think that happens where there's a great script, but it doesn't have a, a recognizable brand attached to it. So they just retool it into the next superhero movie. Probably you know? more often than we think. I imagine. Yeah. yeah. More often than we want to admit even um, a bad Lieutenant. Port of Call, New Orleans is the one that leaps to mind right now, is that the producer had the rights to uh, Bad Lieutenant and they were wanting to make this police drama set in New Orleans after the, uh, after, the, after the flood. And 
they just said, well, we'll put it together because at least people have heard of Bad Lieutenant, even though they had nothing to do with each other. Yeah, I'm sure there's a whole long list of movies and, and books that fall into that category of wasn't written to be this, but it had a better chance with this attached. Hmm. Well, didn't we do the same thing with uh, our own spinoff? This brings us back around, Dan, I hate to point it out, but we're circling back around to a point we made earlier uh, with Claire Marshall, Gear and C. We yeah. had a property, but we didn't have a way to reach the people who could read at that level in the time that we wanted to have it out. So we reached out to someone else who could do the job. So that was us trying to, you know, stoke the fires of that um, longevity of the property, right? Yeah. It's, so, it's going to last longer if we have more creative people working on it than just us. So really everything we've criticized, we're, we're guilty of also. I don't think we've been criticizing. We're just talking. <laughs> just talking. <laughs> just talking. I did, I did make an unkind observation of Henry Cavill. So Henry, I know you're not listening, but <laughs> your fans are listening. Um, he's good at what he does. You see him as Sherlock Holmes. He, he was a better Sherlock Holmes than he is a uh, <laughs> Gerald of Rivia or go. whatever. All right, we got to wrap this up, guys. Oh, we're going well, long. Dan says, stop talking. <sighs> this says super pop science <laughs> where we talk about how genre gets made. This is Gregory Kamichuk encouraging you to join the fight and make comics. Mm -hmm.